Greetings and salutations all. Welcome to the Control Yourself podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. What do you learn at FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com? You learn all about the systems um, that I have uh, created and been teaching for uh, who knows how many years now. You will learn about functional range conditioning, functional range release, um, functional range assessment, kin stretch, the functional range systems. Um, if you want to know the background as to how they were created, why they were created, a little bit about the understanding of the uh, evidence base used to create the systems, um, you can go ahead and visit functionalanatomyseminars.com as well if you want to uh, register for any upcoming certifications in FRC, FRA, FR release, kin stretch. We have online certifications now, of course, because of COVID. Um, and we're running them all over the world, um, online certification. So visit functionalanatomyseminars.com um, for any information on upcoming seminar dates. We are also brought to you on this episode and as all episodes by Westside Barbell. Uh, you go ahead and visit westside-barbell.com. If you use the promo code DRE10, D-R-E-10, number 10, on checkout, you will receive 10% off your purchase of educational material, um, clothing, and such. Um, if you also visit uh, westside-barbell.com, uh, you will be visiting the website of a, a historical um, gym uh, that is well known to many in the strength and conditioning community. Uh, Louis Simmons, the, the, the founder of Westside Barbell, is known to mostly everybody in the strength and, con and, and conditioning world um, because of his application of, of scientific principles to human optimization, strength development, speed development, etc. Uh, learn more at westside-barbell.com. On today's episode, I have one of my favorite human beings in the whole wide world, my good friend Dewey Nielsen. Uh, Dewey is an elite performance coach. Um, he's uh, lectured all around the world uh, on the topics of human movement optimization, mobility development, uh, endurance training, and more. Um, he's worked with a, a bunch of professional sports organizations, countless numbers of teams in the MLB, the NBA, the NFL, uh, fighters in the UFC and other, in other combat sports. Um, he's uh, lectured and, 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 and trained these profession or these organizations in uh, in functional range conditioning and in kin stretch. He's also sought after by athletes um, that, that he works with on uh, um, on conditioning and and body control. Uh, in addition to all of that work and being a, a lead instructor for functional range systems, he is also a longtime Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt instructor. Uh, and and we talk a lot about. Um, the teaching methodology of BJJ and how it relates to the teaching methodology of any um, thing that somebody's trying to learn in terms of motor control and motor learning. Uh, we talk a lot about that. Uh, he's also um, a, a former touring musician, so we get into a little bit about uh, music and, and learning guitar and how that relates to motor learning. He's also a rock climber, a mountain climber, an alpinist, an endurance gravel cyclist, uh, one hell of an endurance athlete uh, in general. So the topic touches on a, a lot of conversation, uh, sorry, pardon me, a lot of uh, topics. I would say the, the majority of the talk 
is on the programming and, and how to program for elite endurance athletes. We talk a lot about the physiology of endurance uh, conditioning, as well as the evolution of sapiens as endurance dependent species. Uh, we talk about creating a suitable aerobic base for whatever sport you're, you're performing, uh, recovery strategies. Uh, we talk about a lot about uh, verbal and tactile cueing for trainers out there to um, you know, enhance uh, movement optimization in their clients. Uh, we get into the, the, the pitfalls of, of human consciousness uh, as an evolutionary structure. We get into a lot of topics. I enjoyed the conversation very much. I hope you guys do as well. And without further delay, I bring you my good friend, Mr. Dewey Nielsen. Live with the infamous Dewey Nielsen, as is known from the, f- the fucking internet, I guess. <laughs> the interwebs. How many people do? You, how many people do you figure we know now because of like? Remember when we only used to have like five friends and two of them didn't like you very much? Remember that? <laughs> those times? Or is that just me? <laughs> now it's more. Oh, I like the Ninja Turtles there. Yeah, dude. I, I have I, my home is real big. Like you remember when was the Ninja Turtles? It was like 1984 or some shit like that. 19, I, I loved them, dude. When I was a kid, I loved them, and now my fucking kids love them because they have like yeah. new editions of them, and they're all fantastic. Who was your one? What do you mean? Like who'd you like the most? It was, it was determined by the weapon they carried. Was the, yeah, no, you know what? I don't think I had. A, I don't think I had a favorite to be honest with you. Oh, I did. Raphael with the size. With the, it's because of his badass attitude and yeah. his willingness to, to take chances. Sure, but mostly the size. Mostly the Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I had a favorite, to be honest with you. Probably a bad guy. I liked bad guys when I was younger. Is there something psychologically wrong with that? Probably. If, there were, sure. yeah, if they study, they'd probably see that you had a, like a shrunken amygdala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slightly muted. Anyway, that's a good way to start a podcast. So for those of you who don't know Dewey Nielsen, lose my number. No. If you don't know Dewey Nielsen, Dewey Nielsen is one of my best friends in the world, and he is also uh, our head instructor um, for functional range conditioning, which you just had on the weekend. You just had one, right? Yep, just just yesterday. Give me a give me a, a thing on the online experience. What are we thinking? I think, I mean, in my opinion, the online experience is even better. Did I write that down? No, seriously, no, really, and. And I think you know why my opinion would be that like, well, like one from a selfish standpoint is I'm not traveling and the traveling is awesome. But as you know, how exhausting that gets uh, flying through multiple time zones and other countries, you just get smashed up. Uh, Like I was hesitant when we first took them online. I was kind of like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? Um, Because I'm a very, as you know, hands-on coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm like, all right, how do we deliver this? Now that we've done, I don't know how many we've done. Holy cow, have we been like blasting them out? It's wicked. I mean, all the material is there, and then some. Like you, you refilmed like all the lectures, so it's like, like on my end, it's almost easier because I'm not doing as thick of lecturing. So now I just fly right into kind of the hands-on practical. Uh, it's wicked, man. And people can do it from their home. I mean, that's, yeah, man. that's pretty awesome. 
Speaking of hands-on, that brings me to, you know, I've been introducing you now for maybe 12 minutes of the first beginning. I haven't introduced a damn thing yet. So if you don't know Dewey, rewind to before, uh, Dewey is one of our uh, lead instructors. He's also a longtime Brazilian, Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He is a musician who has toured all across Europe and North America, as far as I know. It's North America. And when, when we did the tour thing, it was on the West Coast. I'm, I'm a failing musician, but yeah. Good. That's good. Yeah, failing musician, better than not. And then, uh, and then a mountain man slash endurance athlete slash runner slash cyclist slash um, doing things for a long time guy. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, endurance training a little bit later, but I want to bring something up because you brought it up. You were talking about uh, you're a hands-on coach and that leads me into uh, one topic that we can uh, chit chat about, which is um, why are you a hands-on coach? Because we've been doing FRC for a long time. And I think because we've both come from substantial martial arts backgrounds, um, we've bled all of our martial arts training into how we teach. And right. specifically, uh, Dewey, who is, who is one of my jiu-jitsu coaches, um, you told me something one time which completely changed, uh, you know, not, not only just grappling, but it, it, also, it also improved the way that I described uh, manual therapy when we're doing FR technique and we're doing FRC, and that's the idea of absorbing space. So I remember we were rolling one time, and, and for whatever reason, you said there's space there, and everyone else, you know, Everyone you train with, they have their own way of saying what I think you were saying, but sometimes the right string of mouth noises comes out and it just solidifies a concept. And then when that concept solidified, it automatically unlocks the concept to every other thing in your, in your life. Does that make sense? Have you ever had these experiences? So you, you sit, yeah, you said, um, instead of just don't leave any space or instead of there's too much room, you said, I want you to stop and I want you to absorb the space which I, I thought of as creating an, a, a vacuum whereby I'm sucking any uh, space outside of the, you know, subatomic molecular kind of space between us at all times, but I'm sucking all of that air out so that I can mold myself around the person. And the reason why it hit me so hard is because that's exactly how I describe manual therapy, where you have manual therapists who are kind of fumbling with someone's head or they're trying to do a manipulation by being way far away from someone and crashing into them. Where I've always taught, and now the way I teach it is the way you say it is, before you do anything, absorb the space between you. Yeah, I remember, I remember us doing that and I remember you relating it to uh, treatment and you had said um, closing the circuit. Closing the circuit, that's closing right. You need to say closing I the circuit. Absorb the space, yeah. So in, in the, the game of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, uh, that is mostly what you're trying to do. You're trying to absorb space. When someone's defending themselves, they're trying to somewhat create space a lot of the time so that they can get themselves out of a pickle situation. Uh, but yeah, closing the space. And as you've done and I've done is you took martial arts and you bled it into treatment, which is like at the seminars, I always tell them to find that YouTube video where it's you doing jujitsu mobilizations yeah, yeah, a bunch of them. It makes, from a therapist standpoint, of course, everyone, I'm not a therapist, I'm a, I'm a coach, but from a therapist standpoint, that makes your job easier. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes it easier to move joints around because a jujitsu 
submission. If you don't take them to the tap, it's a mobilization. That's true. Um, yeah. So in or if you hate your patients, I guess. You're gonna hear some random clicking every now and then. Yeah. Uh, old puppy, she will be wandering around, deaf, and stomping on the floors. And no worries. By me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I took the, uh, my knowledge and experience in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and bled it right into my coaching style of strength and conditioning. Uh, and, and I started to do that before I actually, I think, knew what I was doing, before there was actually literature on uh, coaching cueing from people like Gabriel Wolf, et cetera. Um, and in that literature, they always talk about uh, creating an image of achievement. So if you go back to what we just said, absorbing the space, well, that's, that's the image of achievement, right? So you're almost like putting in your brain that it's like a sponge. I need to absorb that space. So that's why at the seminars, I'm so big on uh, verbal cueing and tactile cueing. And we, we go through what those things are because what comes out of your mouth is actually really damn important. And even more important is how you actually put your hands on someone to guide them around to use their own meat wagon. Because what we really are is physical educators. We're not rep counters. I try to discourage trainers from being rep counters and we're far more important than that. We're trying to teach someone about their physical self. Uh, so creating an image of achievement with your verbal cues and then using your tactile cueing, your hands or props, external tools to give their brain some feedback as to what you're trying to achieve here. Because people don't know a lot, especially general pop, they don't know a lot about their physical selves. So they don't know what they're trying to exactly accomplish. They don't have anatomical knowledge, physiological knowledge. So you try to replace things that will tease those things out, give words that they understand that you can tease those things out. So if you watch me coach, I know you've seen me coach, but I'm pretty much like on someone. It looks like I'm doing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu with someone. Mm -hmm. um, that comes with a, a little bit of caution first when you're, you're doing that with people uh, because you do have to build rapport. For example, a male training a female, uh, you need to respect their space. Uh, not tower over them, uh, build rapport before you're, you're touching them, get their permission to touch them. But outside of that, I'm very, very hands-on. As am I with manual therapy. And you bring up a good point about, about physical space. And you know what I've always, I've, always told, I've always taught these at the seminar is that when you are going to be in someone else's physical space, it's, it's a matter of verbally talking your way through it um, so that both of you understand what's going to happen. And that's how I teach people to do it. So I'm about to grab your shoulder in order to make it do this. This is what your shoulder does. Can you show me where, like you, you show me what your shoulder does. Okay. So now they're involved in the conversation. Now I'm going to grab your shoulder. That's cool. Okay. So now I have your shoulder. Now I'm going to grab here because I want to internally, I just talk my way through it. And I find that it is a, and talk your way through it confidently too. There's nothing worse than be a uh, hello. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going to be, I'm going to grab your arm. Yeah, you immediately start yeah. to get creep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but with regards to touch, I, the, you are talking about it again. A lot of people might not even know what we're talking about because when you consider other trainers and, and what people are, you know, quote unquote, what they're doing when they're training, most of it doesn't involve touch, right? Most of it doesn't involve uh, any kind of manual cueing. And that's despite 
a good amount of evidence in the literature about uh, tactile biofeedback and the ability to concentrate efforts, um, be it consciously, consciously or by affecting the afferents by manually touching an area, but the ability to increase uh, awareness and, and, and motor output to an area using manual biofeedback is something that's rarely talked about in, in, uh, in training or rarely demonstrated in training at least. Absolutely. And it's, it's just one more layer of a demonstration of the difference between a black belt coach and a white belt coach. And I don't mean martial arts. I just mean in coaching anything. If you were coaching sport, if you were coaching strength and conditioning, whatever you're coaching, that's, that's one of the primary features of the difference between a novice coach and an expert coach is the ability to uh, not only verbally cue, but the tactile cueing is of the most importance. So when I, when I talk about cueing, I, I tell people to kind of create a, a hierarchy list. And the lowest thing on the hierarchy list is actually your verbal cueing. And that's not to devalue verbal cueing. It's very important. But as you've seen, when you touch someone, that gets way more response out of someone than what you're saying. But you have to combo those things together to achieve what you want to achieve. Yeah. I think I talked about this with uh, Josh not too long ago, but the, the, it's, not, it's not crazy the idea that your tactile cueing would be even more potent than your verbal cueing, uh, considering it's, you know, like we always say, words are, words are just mouth noises, which are created by movement. So words are not real things, so to speak. Words are just air being pushed through your vocal cords in a certain position, which is guided by movement which is guided by afferents, guided by muscles, guided by the same stuff that we deal with. So it, it's not surprising to me that it's, it's more difficult to, to verbally cue, um, which is why a lot of smart people have had to study the best ways to do it. And, and you mentioned one, and like Nick Winkleman, uh, for example, is another. Um, but it's amazing how people are, are, are going directly to verbal cues and are completely omitting the, the tactile and movement cues, which it, it, like you said, are more, more relevant. And honestly, even, even trainable from the, the practitioner standpoint, like we always talk about with FR, when you're palpating, you're increasing your, your cortical awareness and your, of, your, of your tactile sensations and your touch. And that's something that's very trainable, like your sensory cortex, if you touch with intent, if you're palpating with uh, a background system in place that allows you to think your way through your palpation, you can increase cortical representation of your, your sensory touch organs, which are your hands, right? So even as you're training people, you actually start to get better at, at feeling the body and, and not only giving cues, but feeling how they're responding to your cues. That's right. It's like anything, right? You need repetition of that coaching to become a ninja at that coaching. Yeah, which yeah, brings me, again, sorry, go ahead. You mentioned Nick Winkleman. Yeah. Yeah, funny enough, Nick just put out a book. Um, I think you, do you, do you know who put out a book? Do you have his book? I have I, I forward in his book, actually. It's, okay. I, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually have not even seen the book yet, but uh, I'm confident enough to recommend the book to people. Uh, Nick is awesome. Nick, it's everything, it's everything that we've been saying for years about what Nick says. I'm, yeah, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nick, I met Nick a long time ago at 
funny enough, Nick grew up uh, just down the road from me, actually, in a couple towns oh, down the road. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. And then I met Nick, um, oh God, I forget what year. It, it's been a long time. At a place called Athletes Performance, a guy, Mark Verstegen, started Athletes Performance. That is now known as Exos. Um, and Nick was kind of the head honcho for uh, their mentorship stuff and, and leading a bunch of the athletes through their training camps. And that's where I met Nick and then found out, oh, holy cow, we grew up right down the road from each other. Mm. Nick was already a ninja coaching back then. He was very young. He was like the youngest guy in that facility. Coaching. He's still young. He doesn't age. No, he doesn't age, man. No, he, he's sharp. Yeah, same energy as he had probably when he was like 10. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you should get Nick on the podcast, huh? Yeah, we've talked about it many times, and it's one of those things. Um, but I, I'm sure it'll, I'm sure it'll, it'll happen soon. Um, so again, getting back to that, that thing. So just so people take away something about what we we're talking about, they can take home with them. With regards to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and the closing of space, um, how do you explain to a beginner practitioner? Because I think that would be one of the earliest things that you should probably teach someone to do. How do I explain that from a standpoint, not Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but in... No, no, in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like how do you, like in terms of application of that concept? Um, really setting up drills where it would force them to have to absorb space. So one of the, the things you, the thing with Jiu-Jitsu is it's a, it's a real martial art. Like it's, it's different than some of the traditional martial arts and where the traditional martial arts are often practicing um, katas and things like that and just punching the air. And I'm not against that type of stuff. And in, in my mind, that is unloaded resistance and that helps the brain learn the movements of what you're doing in the martial art. Uh, so I think that that's a really good place to start is with low resistance and then start to build up the resistance. So rigging up drills that would offer that where they're not right in a fight. If you go right into sparring and jujitsu and just grappling with someone, you're not going to learn very much. You have to create an environment where it pulls out a single feature and rig up a drill where you're repeating that feature over and over and over again. So if it was a thing where we're speaking on absorbing the space, let's say uh, someone's on the bottom and they're defending the person on the top and the other person is on, in a, a cross sides position right here. Sure. And the person on the bottom is trying to create space to get away. The person on top is trying to absorb that space. So we may do a drill where we're carving the hip around the elbow to absorb the space. And we repeat that, we repeat that, we repeat that. The bottom person is giving no resistance. And then I start to up the resistance. So I start to explain to my bottom person start to give my top person 10% resistance. So now they move the elbow around a little bit. They don't let them carve the hip around that elbow as well. And this should simply build up on that resistance. And now they start to learn how to carve the hip, how to absorb the space with greater and greater resistance, like strength training, progressive resistance. That's actually what we would say, uh, or at least what I would say in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, we do drills of progressive resistance. We also do drills of regressive positioning. So we may start at the end of a movement to build success. Let's say I was teaching someone how to do an arm bar. I would start them right in the arm bar 
And then we could do drills of 10% resistance. The person fights and they get armbar. They get armbar. So now the person doing the armbar is building success, getting the armbar over and over again because they only have to do that much movement. Mm-hmm. Now, regressive positioning, I move further out from the successful standpoint. So now they have to unlock their legs, maybe. So now they have to do steps where they absorb the space of closing their legs, closing their heels, and then go for the arm bar, building progressive resistance on the opponent's side, and then regress the position again, come further outside the arm bar. And you're starting to learn one step at a time. You're essentially reverse engineering the arm bar. Rather than starting at the start of the arm bar, there's 12 steps to get to the arm bar. Well, let's start step 12, show success, absorb the space, regress the position, build up resistance, and continue to do that path until you're all the way slapping hands and then going for the arm bar. Mm -hmm. So you're just trying to rig up drills that highlight the features that you're trying to tease out. There's an, another thing about the absorption of space I, I, that, I, that I learned from you was with regards to your application. So let's talk about the person applying the armbar at, at this point. And the idea that we talk about it in FR and FRC in the system, this idea of bioflow and the idea that all of your uh, tissues at a cellular level are, are connected. It's just like one blanket of, of tissues with intercellular connections such that your skin blends with your fascia superficialis, blends with your epimecium into your paramecium, into your endomecium, right down to the, 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 the small structures of your tissue. So when applying um, something like an armbar, another thing that I think valuable to talk about here with absorbing space is the idea of instead of grabbing a wrist and extending the elbow and then pushing your hips up on the elbow, was the idea that you should have the submission done before you're at the lockout point. And the reason you should have your, 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 the submission done before you're at the lockout point is because if you absorb all of the space around between you and your opponent's tissue, that means that you're literally grabbing all of the skin, all of the connective tissue, and you're absorbing it into you such that when you start to pull, instead of just using the arm as a lever, you're extending with the arm. So all of their connective tissue is being pulled with them. So it's, it's a gross feeling. And I've been armbarred before by many people, of course. And, you know, you get into an armbar and you feel that lock where you submit. And then when you were, would do it or when Brian would do it, it would be like I would be here and you would almost be tapping out because you feel like all of your skin, including the skin of your face, like you feel like if you – you don't want a fucking cartoon – when you're pulling something and then the eyes go like this and it just starts, it felt like my whole goddamn being was being sucked into you and yeah. you would, I'd be tapping as my arm was bent like to here. Yeah. That's a proper arm bar. Yeah. yeah I, I guess you call absorbing the space. What you're doing is uh, people think when they see an arm bar first, they think it's my arms, two of my arms versus that one person's arm. So they're pulling on the yeah. arm, bar, like you're saying. And what I teach is I say, this is a, this is a $500 move. You're going to use your entire body to do a submission. So now pace, rather than thinking of pulling the arm, paste the arm and make it part of your bioflow. And now start to do the arm bar. And what you will do is you'll get that arm bar before the elbow even locks out because they can feel that their limb is about to be detached from their entire body. However, what you can't expect someone to do is to do that with that intensity and that technique if they can't segmentally extend areas of their spine. Right. 
new topic. So we get back to the idea of body control and the idea that, yeah, it's one thing to be able to absorb that. And what Dewey, what you're saying is that you're going to change your body position and bring them along with you. But people who don't have the ability to extend, that's going to end up being a, res a, a, a spot where they can't continue. And then they're going to have to bleed it out into another area of their body which brings us nicely into the idea of prerequisites for things like this. Right. Because you cannot move where you cannot move. Cannot move where you cannot move. I don't know why that, that concept is so difficult for many people to uh, get. They just want to do patternized training. This is why something like kin stretch is the ultimate training for something like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. The ability to develop those prerequisites. Like I meet so many people who are doing Jiu Jitsu and let's say they're doing a, a triangle choke is a really common one. They can't do a triangle choke. So they make these excuses of my legs are too short. They can't wrap around the head and the arm, yada, yada, yada. But really, if you take them out of that, the reason oftentimes why they've never been able to do something like a triangle choke is because they don't have the prerequisites to do it. So something like a triangle choke requires a decent amount of hip external rotation out of one of the hips. Now, if someone doesn't have the amount of external rotation to do what is requested from the triangle choke, they will, in fact, never be able to do the triangle choke. Then what you hear is you, see, you hear the Brazilian jiu-jitsu coach just yell louder and they say, do more reps, do more reps, do more reps. But they're just practicing something that they'll never be able to accomplish. So rather, you should pull the athlete out and see, well, hell, do they actually have the prerequisite to do the move I'm coaching them? If I see that, if I'm watching someone struggle with a triangle choke, I pull them off, I look at the hip. If they don't have a hip to do it, we're not drilling triangle choke today. They can drill an arm bar today. Then we're going to use FRC and kin stretch to make a hip. We eventually give them hip external rotation. Now they have access to a hip. Now they can actually practice the movement of which now they'll be able to, to get. So if you don't have the prerequisites, your game is less diverse. You have less weapons on your hip of which you can select to fight with. So as we know with movement variability, the more access to uh, motion, the more options you have to learn movement. Well, you see, and then you get, and then you get the, the reverse interpretation or the incorrect interpretations that you hear. You hear people say things like, you know, everyone has their move, right? And it's as if people say everyone has their move as if the move is somehow in your DNA and it's just ready to come out. Like, like I'm a Kimura guy. Like why the fuck? I am a Kimura guy. Yeah, I know. But, but <laughs> to say that someone's a Kimura guy is to say that somewhere along the line, the Kimura felt right. Right. Or, or it was, it was something that your butt, and then someone will say, well, it just, it matches your physique. Like you, you're, you know, you're a guillotine guy. It just matches you. But maybe it doesn't match you. Maybe it matches your particular movement profile. Or we can call it a movement menu. And you can't move where you can't move, just like you can't order off the menu. So you know what I'm saying? So like maybe a triangle is not your thing, not because your brain isn't plastic enough to learn a triangle. It's just that your, the, 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 the small amount of afferents coming from the tissues that would be in control of that triangle I mean, you haven't sent those signals in so long that it's just not on the menu so that you start to order what you like to order. And I like to order arm triangles instead. 
and then you start to do them and then you start to do them on one side, right? You get good on the one side. It's proof of what I just said. If you're only doing arm triangles from your right side, then it's just showing you that you will ease your way into your menu all, all on your own. And what we've been saying before is if you want a more diverse palette, you got to increase movement options, right? And I, I, again, you're right. I don't know how else to say this um, so people that under, can, can understand, but your body is learning what it's learning based on the information that the meat is sending to your, your, your central nervous system. Like the meat, like I go pick up the cup, the meat tells my nervous system how it's going, what's going on. Was it, was it, was it good? Was it, did you do it properly? Was there an error or was it, was it, you know, executed? What? And that's how you learn. And there's no other way to learn. So when you say you can't move where you can't move, when someone comes to me and says, I want to learn fucking striking. And then I say, okay, well, you know, lift your leg and they can only lift it 30 degrees. I don't say, well, okay, you're only going to kick people's fucking shins. I say, we, okay, we need to fix that. And for some reason, striking people understand that, right? It's not like you're going to go to a kickboxing place and they're like, I don't want to do any head kicks because I'm not born with the flexibility needed to throw head kicks. It's so crazy when people think about it in that regard. Just like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, oh, I'm never going to get a rubber guard. Not, not to say that you want one, but don't tell me you're never going to get it because your genetics don't allow you because then nobody would do anything. Right. 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 Yeah, I mean, that was great how you said you need, a, you need a bigger menu of which to select from um, because you're going to end up in some strange positions. Uh, so again, the, the more degrees of freedom of motion that you have, the more options that you have. And then we say all of this, and then someone on the internet interprets that as we are trying to make everybody a contortionist. <laughs> yeah. It, if you say all that, and then it's like, that's what someone got from that? It's no. Yeah, people get the weirdest things. Like, as if we want, like, we're the opposite of contortionists. We're telling you that whatever you get, you better own. Uh, because once again, if you want it on the menu, as we were saying, unless your nervous system's along uh, on board with it, it's not. It's not on the menu either. And that brings us to another point. You can be as fucking bendy as you want. If you're a BJJ player out there, or anybody else, you can be as bendy as you want. If you think that you know the bendiness is somehow helping you. Uh, the the science tells you you're wrong. It's not the bendiness that helps you. It's the ability to execute or to um, absorb load, right? Yeah, if you can't use your bendiness, if the bendiness is not usable, it's useless, right? Yeah. You can't move where you can't move. And then if you move into where you can't move or if you brought into an area where you can't move, you sure as hell can't defend being in an area where you can't move. Right. Because the definition of defense is the absorption, dissipation, or execution of force. That is your defense. Right. There's no, there's no, um, you see, when your defenses are down, that's when you tap. Does everyone, I hope, does everyone understand that? Like, it's another way to say it. And I hope that makes people make sense. Like if you were, if you were relying on your bendiness, th then there would be no tap because no. you, the whole idea is the tap comes when you're, when, you're, when you've exhausted your active ability to not let that guy or the girl do that to you. Right. Right? Right. Yep. Make, make a menu. Make a menu. Satiate that palate. And then the other thing that we, we talk about this a lot is the, if you're not making your menu, 
man, BJJ is a great example. Combat sports for me are always a great example because to me, the, it's almost the most pure sport. But BJJ is is also the micro evolution of moves. Does that we've talked about this before? So it's like you know, at one point leg locks weren't a thing, and then all of a sudden leg locks were a big thing. And then, of course, when leg locks become a big thing, the defense against leg locks become a big thing. So then, you know, once that becomes a thing that everyone's trained, then it's going to go somewhere else, right? It's going to, and that's, that's a natural selective process, just like human evolution. And the idea that you, if you're not evolving the body, again, microevolution over the course of your life to keep your palate open, to keep your, your options open, I mean, once the once your move gets selected against, you're you're a, you're a, it's it's a problem. Yeah, I mean the, the, these moves repeat itself. This ages me in jujitsu because you brought up leg locks, and leg locks are like seem to be this new thing in Brazilian jujitsu. Mm. They are not a new thing whatsoever. Uh, they're getting more fine tuned now, but they did exit out of jujitsu for a while. When I started jujitsu, we did leg locks. There was no discussion of, oh, don't attack the other half of the body. We all, we did heel hooks, ankle locks, uh, knee bars. We did all of that. Uh, and then they sort of disappeared. Uh, that's a longer conversation. It's kind of a political thing. Um, a lot of when the Americans and uh, Russians, et cetera, got their hands on Brazilian jujitsu, they were already had other tools that they were doing. And a lot of the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys were not like the, the real Brazilians. They were not really training legs. And then someone like Dean Lister showed up and started to really give people some trouble with the leg game. Uh, and then they started to make rules where you could not do the leg locks in these competitions. Mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion, it was to favor certain athletes. Uh, now that that table is turning, now leg locks are back, which uh, makes me very excited because I'm a big fan of the leg locks. And it proves the point about this idea of microevolution because when the leg locks came now into fashion, what you're seeing now is that with evolution comes complexity. And the, this, it's not like leg locks, <coughs> excuse me, weren't there before, but the systematic approach to leg locks has evolved so much. And the systematic approach comes out of people mindfully thinking about leg locks and not only how to apply them, but how to defend them. So you see that micro evolution into leg locks and now leg locks become their own system. And then it's going to go, it's going to go elsewhere. Yeah. Something from 1998 is going to show back up here. Fairly. Right? Yeah. And, and, and that's the, and that gets us back to what we were saying before. So with your athletes, like I know um, when you're training your BJJ players, maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, not necessarily what you do, but the philosophy of the approach um, and, and this idea of, of um, getting the person to better understand their own meat wagon such that they can then utilize their meat wagon to control another person's meat wagon. Yeah, I, I think one of the best things to do, what we try to convince everybody to do is actually to do something like kin stretch. Mm. Because kin stretch is a practice of your physical self uh, in my mind, I don't see anything out there where people are actually practicing themselves. So now this starts to highlight that primary feature of athletic development, which is body control. So start at the fundamentals. This is why I tell uh, parents, if you're going to put your kids in something, 
like dance is a really good thing to start with before you're doing field and court sport uh, activities because you build that first prerequisite of body control. The one physical feature that you probably can't overtrain would be body control, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't have someone say, God damn, Dre, I have too much control of myself. I would like less control over myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so make some body control and then they're better so able to utilize that in a complex uh, activity like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, because Jiu Jitsu is very, very complex because now you have another homo sapien, another dynamic system that you're working against. So like if you watch rock climbing, I always compare rock climbing to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in terms of the movements and the organization that you put your body in. If you watch someone climb up a rock wall you, and you ignore the rock wall and then you watch two jujitsu guys going and ignore one of the athletes. Save one out, yes. It's like they're freaking doing the same uh, movements. Mm -hmm. um, but now with jujitsu, the rock wall is not dynamic and it doesn't change. But the homo sapien that you're fighting against does change. So it is even more complex, requires even more body control. Okay, so I gotta, I'm going to interrupt because I want to get into that. So you're a complex dynamic system who is dealing with a complex dynamic system. Now, for the people who are listening, if you're not a BJJ person, I hope you're understanding how this relates to any other sport that you're doing in that most of the time you're not competing against an inanimate object. You're competing against another dynamic system. Granted, they might be yielding an inanimate object, but the, the complexity comes in dealing with the other dynamic system. And then that brings us back to pattern. And the idea that to train one's pattern over and over again is excellent, but to not train um, the, a buffer zone for your patterns or to not train outside of your patterns um, will hinder your ability to execute and absorb load. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and the more body control you have, the more knowledge you have about the physical self, which means that even if you don't fully understand anatomy and physiology, you're starting to understand some physiology and anatomy, which mm -hmm. then you can scout out your opponents and you can identify the lack of prerequisites and take that to your advantage. So if I'm watching a, a fellow warm up and I, well, I can see that dude has a stiff right shoulder. Mm -hmm. That's going to get his right shoulder Kimura from me. Yeah. Or yeah. this guy has poor hips, so I'm going to do this to him. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can start to know kind of, you can map out a game plan uh, without even seeing their particular game. You can mm -hmm. see how their body moves or doesn't move, and you can attack those deficits. You can see their options. Absolutely. It's like, it's like, it's like anything else. It's just like striking to say that I can't watch someone just kind of sit there and start to throw a few jabs and then start to understand how their body can move. I mean, you can see it. And you know, a lot of people might say that that's too advanced for people, but I know with all of my athletes, I'm teaching them to that, that extent, right? Because like we've always said with our systems that we teach, it's all about getting the person better at themselves, right? That's right. To do that, I have to teach, you have to teach some anatomy. You have to teach um, some dynamic system or they have to understand that, that the system needs to be trained that way or else they just fall right back into their, I'm just going to do deadlifts and bench press type training. 
Yeah, I think that's another part of being a coach when I was saying that we are physical educators. In our facility, when we're working with our fitness clients, we literally teach them the FRC course. Now, it's not over a weekend, it's over time, but we teach them as much about themselves as possible. So I make a rule for my coaches at the gym is let's try to make our clients smarter than any trainer in a hundred mile radius of our facility. I would want to be so comfortable that my clients know so much about anatomy, physiology themselves, that I could actually hand off other clients to them and they could train them better than trainers down the road. So I think it's important that we are actually educating people about themselves. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, of, of the same topic, and you said something you said about the relationship to climbing and how you feel um, that, res that resemblance. And for people who are invested in motor control learning, I mean, that's been my whole career is motor control and, and how to get more of it. And, and, and you're teaching these systems as well. It's amazing how sometimes learning another physical skill can highlight um, important things that you should concentrate on a different physical skill with. Does that make sense? So like you're doing your climbing and you can, you can see and feel the idea of absorbing space and, right. and the exact same thing, such that when you climb, you'll get that same feeling. You, you should probably always recommend BJJ players to at least try climbing, right? Yeah, I th you actually see a lot of them tend to, once they dabble in it, they get kind of hooked. That's what happened to me. So I got into uh, climbing also. I actually originally got into climbing because I have a fear of heights. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to kind of uh, curb that, that fear. Uh, so I started doing something called bouldering, um, which is done without a rope. And it's just done on very short walls. You have a pad that you can fall onto. Uh, so I got into that. And then that led me into doing more sport climbing, lead climbing on a rope. Uh, that led me into doing something called trad climbing, where you actually don't have bolts in the wall. Uh, you're actually placing little things that are called cams or nuts. So little tools that go into cracks in the rock. And then now that's your security and then you clip your rope into that mm -hmm. uh, and then that led me into alpine climbing or mountaineering starting going to the the big mountains um, but all of that it, it, it like satiated me in the same way that jujitsu did but it messed my neck up less <laughs> so i started to do a lot more uh rock climbing than brazilian jujitsu uh, which then all of that led me into other endurancey type sports mm uh musashi's quote right once you see the, the the way broadly you see it in all things what was that quote i don't know i've heard that quote yeah something like that to the to the idea that once you see the way to learn in one in one way you realize that all learning is the exact same and and it's funny about that quote is that it, it that quote really punches home to me that the reason why when you when you perfect one thing like brazilian jiu-jitsu why you find that, that people who are that determined can also perfect other things. Um, it all comes back to the, the idea that it's all physical education, right? Everything you learn is physical education. And what I mean by that gets back to what we were saying before is that everything is related to movement. Even the creation of words is related to movement. So there is no, like the number seven, I often tell people, what, what is the number seven? seven like when you think about that it's just a spatial relationship um, that you utilize in order to organize the space around you 
right? There is no number seven. Like think about that. Seven. It's, 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 it's letters. It's seven, six, six. Start saying the word. My daughter said this the other day. If you say a word enough times, pick a word like asparagus, just say it enough times. And it starts to sound ridiculous because it starts to, you start to realize is that you're just taking a whole bunch of cells and you're denoting a mouth noise to explain, to explain how to identify it the next time. Asparagus, like you're dewy, dewy. The, the sound dewy represents all of the trillions of cells that allow you to have this conversation. Yeah, we like to see why I got onto this topic. I don't remember. But what I think I was getting at is that the reason why it always feels the same is because it's always a physical process. And it's, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so a year ago, as you know, I picked up guitar and I started to learn how to play the guitar. Um, and, and what I, 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 first thing I remember from learning guitar is, oh, this is just jujitsu with the hand, right? Or it's manual therapy and pal- with, with the hand. So like just if, if I wanted to feel a pec minor and teach someone to feel it, it's reps. I have to show you a pec minor, you have to feel a pec minor, you have to do it. Just like if you're doing an arm bar, I have to show you the arm bar, you have to feel the, the arm bar, you have to do the arm bar, you have to rep the arm bar. It's the same with, with guitar. It's just now instead of macro organization, it's micro organization. It's funny, when you macro organize yourself, you're called an athlete. But when you micro-organize your movements, you're called an artist. Yeah, that's funny. But it's the exact same. It's exactly thing. the same, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, the learning is the same. It's just hand shapes to the extent that when I say that um, you don't think in words, you think in movements, and people get confused. If I asked you right now to explain how to play whatever song you know how to play, and I said, I want you to tell me which frets, the, which, you wouldn't be able to say it. Like right. I know, I don't know how many songs I know now, 20, 30 songs, but I couldn't tell you the song, how to do it. But if you give me a guitar, I can play the song. So yeah. what does that mean? It means that the song is stored in, in movement. It's not stored in, I can, you know, that you can read a song, but really if I say play a song, it's all based on movement. You don't think to yourself what you're doing. Right. Same with any other process which is why we simplify it so much, right? Like there's so much going on on a guitar when you play a G chord, but we call mm-hmm. it a G chord, mm-hmm. which is actually smart coaching, right? You're taking something very complex. The G chord requires this, 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 but we call it G. So then you can tell someone play a G rather than saying do this, 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 this. That's mm-hmm. exactly how I coach jujitsu too. If you think of something like a shrimping movement in jujitsu, turn on your side, you put load into one shoulder, into both feet, you unload your hips, you push your hips back, and then you come back onto your back. There's a lot of steps in that. Rather, you want to say shrimp so that they know what all of those steps are. So in the land of coaching, you want to take something complex and string it down all the way down to three or five words. So you want to take a paragraph and make it three to five words. Really elite coaching would be one word, shrimp. That means a whole lot of things to the person. So it starts to simplify the, uh, the conversation with the person, uh, simplifies the task. Hmm. Yeah, jiu-jitsu is uh, guitar. Guitar is jiu-jitsu. And those things are everything also, how you learn. And those things are therapy, right? It's like in jiu-jitsu, it's like the management of forces um, with the intent of overcoming, overcoming tissue. And then when you're doing therapy, 
it's the it's the management of forces where you're trying to alter tissue and then rehabilitation is the management of forces where you're trying to use the forces to improve upon tissue but it's all in the same spectrum it's all forces right it's all application or or receiving of of physical force um and forces the language of cells as we as we often say absolutely you know what let's let's switch gears here because one of the the things where you your expertise uh, lies is in the the concept of endurance training and i want to bring up the idea of endurance training because it it opens up a, a a nice discussion on what people are doing versus what we think they should be um, so I'll start it off with this, and I've said this before. When we talk about endurance training, I don't know when it happened uh, in history, but there used to be a lot of emphasis on you know long distance, low energy output type endurance, and then for whatever reason, um, and, and this is by no way a scientifically driven change, because if it was, I would have felt it um, having always read the science on this topic, but there was a switch in the ether such that endurance training just became um, high intense interval training. Right. Okay. Um, can, can you speak to that or you need more of a question? Uh, yeah. am, I, am I, I'm not the only one who feels this, I, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is what you see. You, you, you see these very strange uh, empty claims that High intensity training. So if I call it a uh, hit, there's two types of hit high intensity interval training. And then there's that one rep max. So I'm talking about interval training conditioning. Um, people will claim that that gives you everything that long duration, low intensity conditioning does, and it gives you more and it does it in a shorter amount of time. So you just have to do some uh, Tabata intervals for 20 minutes and that's going to give you the same, uh, adaptations that something like uh, one hour of low intensity work would you give you but unfortunately it's not that simple it doesn't do that I don't know why it turned to that um, my hunch is that it's a lack of understanding the species that we are so maybe it's a lack of knowledge in evolutionary biology but people are forgetting the, the species that we are everything from an evolutionary standpoint tells us that we are an endurance species uh, everything from our past um, we're not strong we're not fast we're not powerful we're very clumsy we have poor stability due to being bipedal animals uh, we can be topped over very simple so you have all of that especially uh, now now we're just soft squishy things we are very soft and squishy uh, so you take something when we moved from being a quadrupedal animal to a bipedal animal uh, that gave us a lot of good selective tools uh, in that when you're bipedal you one you spend less energy than being a four-legged animal and moving upon the earth with four legs that costs a higher currency and that currency is calories so that's going to cost you more calories also being a quadrupedal animal the sun hits you more so therefore you absorb more of the sun and now we are naked apes we don't have fur and that's also advantageous to our species 
when you're four-legged and you have fur, you're spending more energy, you're absorbing more sun, and now with that fur, you don't have this awesome thing called sweat glands. So Homo sapien has millions and millions of sweat glands so that we can cool our body down. We're actually the only uh, mammal that can run a marathon in heat. No other mammal can do this. And that takes you back to how we used to hunt as persistence hunters. We would uh, out-endure animals, animals that could absolutely kick our ass. They were more powerful, stronger, but we could work cooperatively. So that's another uh, feature of us as a species. We can work all together. I mean, the fact that we can sit in a big arena and watch a sporting event with thousands and thousands of people and not sit there and murder each other is a pretty special thing. So we are cooperative. Now, being bipedal, we spend less energy. We're able to sweat and cool our body down. And then how we actually breathe benefits us too. So we can breathe through our nose and, and why you get that mucus when you go for a run and someone's getting all snotty. Well, now as you exhale, that actually lubricates the air that you're going to suck back in so that your lungs don't dry out. We have overdeveloped lungs. I think the only other animal is a, uh, a pronghorn, an antelope, and they have overdeveloped lungs, which is why uh, both of us species, a, a pronghorn and a homo sapien, are badass runners. The pronghorn can run super fast and not as long as sapien, uh, but that's another feature of why we are what we are and shows us that we are endurance animals and we're fat we're the fattest of all primates um, even a, a very skinny endurance athlete they they can store what like up to like 2,000 calories of glycogen so sugar in their body but they can store up to a hundred thousand calories of fat so we actually have copious amounts of currency that we can pull from to move our bodies at a low intensity to hunt that animal, move all day. Uh, that's a lot of fat, even for just a, a skinny person. Um, mm -hmm. Just all of these features, you, you look at all of the features in our anatomy and our physiology, continually points to we are an endurance species. Even look at our feet. We have the ability to flatten that arch. Everything on us shows us that we're an endurance species. Um, but then I think strength coaches, they look at the demands of a particular sport and that's as far as they look. They just look, oh, wow, this is a, a strength and power sport, so we should only train strength and power. But they're forgetting completely about the fundamentals of the species and having a good platform to build off of, and that is having a good, finely tuned aerobic system. So if you have a good, finely tuned aerobic system, you can utilize more of your anaerobic energy even better. Um, you don't even have to tap into that anaerobic energy as much because your body is so finely tuned aerobically that you can use something like fat at higher intensities than should be thought of. Uh, so if you're a strength and power athlete, you would think you're only going after glycogen, uh, but that's not true. Your body's going to go after fat stores too. And the more that you teach your body how to go after fat stores, and that requires lower intensity training, the better and more efficient you can do that. So you can see when people say, when strength coaches say that uh, endurance training is going to make them slow. I can't fathom why someone would say that. 
If you look at who just broke that marathon record, it wasn't a, a, a legit race. That was Kipchonge. Uh, I hope I'm saying his name right, but he did a sub two hour marathon. So you're telling me that a sub two minute marathon, which is like a four minute something mile. So a four minute mile, that is not slow. I can't even run a single mile at a four minute pace. That is shockingly fast. So no, it doesn't make you slow. If you only did slow training, you wouldn't be as fast, but we're not saying that. Like we're not saying, oh, just stop. Don't ever sprint again. Don't ever do plyos again. Don't ever do speed work. We've never said that. We're not saying that. Funny enough, that is how many people interpret it. Because if you, if you look at some of the posts that I've done over the, the, the last few years about trying to highlight more, bring more of the aerobic training back into uh, someone's program design, um, many people, I would, I would say, in a five, I'm, I'm speaking on a five-zone heart rate system because there's so many different heart rate training systems, but the classic five zone. I was trying to get people to do more zone one, zone two work, a lot of zone two work, this low intensity work. But many people heard that as only do zone two work. So now everyone's announcing every workout they do. I'm doing my zone two work. I'm doing my zone two work. Wish people would stop, by the way, telling me what they're doing in their training. Like, just go enjoy your training. You don't have to tell me what zone you're in. You didn't do it if you didn't post it, brother. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but people took that as, oh, Dewey is anti-high intensity. Never said that. Come train with me and you will see that I do a lot of intervals. Dude, um, people think that I only care about my joints and their ranges of right? motion. Like right? it's amazing yeah. how as soon as you focus on one topic, how people think that that's the only thing you're able to focus on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I've never lifted a weight before. I, I have no idea about Olympic lifting or powerlifting because you just do this one thing. It's yeah. Crazy. It's very strange. Yeah. It's very strange. But I mean, I, I think all of that has to stem from not understanding the species that you're training. Um, because everything shows us that we're an endurance species. So why don't you train the human first to be a human and then build the sport specificity off of that. It will always go better. Uh, the athlete is going to be able to develop more power. They'll be faster. And something that's often underlooked is the ability to recover. Your aerobic system recovers you. Uh, not just in between bouts of efforts or sets or reps, but in between days too. The better the aerobic system, the, the sooner the athlete can train, which means that they get more frequency of training which means that they can develop more volume. And I often say volume is the king of all training, but I should back up and I, say, I should say, it's not really the king. The king is how good can you recover from that volume? Because the volume is crap if you can't recover from it. So if you're just tallying up more miles or more, more strength sessions, if you can't recover from the insult into your body, then none of that was good in the first place. Uh, so you have to be able to recover from that volume. But, okay, so let's bring it back so that make the argument in a different way. We can say in the same thing that you just said, you can also say you should probably care about the quality of your tissues, organ systems, and joints um, as much as you care about whatever training result you're looking for. You should probably care more about that stuff. You should probably care more about that stuff, which we term internal training. 
um, which is a term people might not be familiar with, which is scary because again, we like the whole system that we teach functional range is an internal training and management system, right? There's internal training, external training. Uh, I don't know who else is, I don't know what other internal training systems are being applied, but that's scary that I have to make that distinction between internal training and external. Um, but one of the things that comes with internal training is something that I've been harping about in the last few months, which is the idea that um, tissue specific training has to be there prior to any sport specific training. And that might sound like people thinking that I just want people to do our type of training first and then that no, but any thing that you want, any quality you want is ultimately going to depend at some point to the quality of the tissue. So people talk about getting strong. So they want to get strong. And, and, and the idea about getting strong is adding muscle and they focus on this, this idea of adding muscle. But if your connective tissue is of a, a worse quality, then no matter how many muscle proteins you add, like muscle is the actuator. It's just the, the thing, it's the motor that, that, that drives force into connective tissue. That's all that muscle is, which is why I keep saying, don't worry so much about muscle, worry about the status of the connective tissues that, that create the environment for these muscle proteins. But if these muscle proteins contract, if they're contracting against poor quality tissue, then you will not get high outputs of strength. So you have to have a strong motor, but you also have to be pulling against good quality stiff tissue in order to actually turn that potential for um, uh, force output into actual force output, right? Absolutely. You, can't, you can't play pool with a piece of string. It has to be a pool stick, right? And it's, it's the same thing with anything else. So if your tissue quality is bad and I just get you to start, you know, one would ever say if someone had bad tissue quality, they're just coming out of an injury. So that would be the easiest way to understand bad tissue quality because the, the quality of the tissue is damaged. So you're just coming out of an injury. Do you start with plyometrics? Right. Right. No one's going to say yes. Right. Except that one dude who always clicks dislike. <laughs> that fucking guy is just not going to like what I have. But anyway. No one's going to say that you want to take someone with core quality tissue and start them with fucking crazy high energy expending plyometrics, right? You would wait until you built better quality tissue. And that's the process of training isometric to more dynamic work, to eccentric loading, to more, you know what I mean? Okay. So when someone comes into a, a gym nowadays and, and your gym's one of those, Oh, I'm doing high intense circuits. If the person comes in and he's a 54-year-old construction worker who's uh, 47 pounds overweight and is a smoker, what do you think the tissue quality in their heart is going to be? Like, what's the quality of their heart tissue? You have small space in that cavity of the heart. You have overdevelopment of concentric cardiac hypertrophy. And then that athlete or that coach is going to throw them on some intervals day one or day two. It's crazy. So you would never take a damaged muscle and say, do this to a damaged muscle, right. but you'll take a fucked up heart. That's already doing this too fast because that's the whole reason why it's fucked up right there. Hypertension and more pressure in the system. And to make that better, what we're saying is I want you to do things as fast as you possibly can, right? I want you to do burpees, go. 
So you just keep smashing out this poor quality tissue. So the air is not only from an evolutionary perspective of understanding the species, but it's also lacking the knowledge of what is happening physiologically. When Which is a lack of evolutionary understanding as to what happens with our species yeah. argument. Right? These things are, are not the same. I think you already spoke on this on one of the podcasts, but when you're doing lower intensity, longer duration work in respect to your heart, what you're doing is causing eccentric cardiac hypertrophy. So think that the blood is pooling in the cavity of the heart and we are starting to get stretch over time in that cavity, making it bigger, making it capable of accepting more blood so that it can push more blood to the working tissues. When you're doing higher intensity work, it's the opposite. And this is not to say that high intensity work is bad. This is just what it's doing. This is now focusing on concentric cardiac hypertrophy. So that outer wall, the ability for that heart to pump faster and harder. So those are two different qualities. Knowing what our species is, we should err on the side of more eccentric cardiac hypertrophy. Like if you were putting it on a scale, if you looked at how endurance athletes train, they're about 80% low intensity, 20% higher intensity. Um, that's in the endurance world. Now you would scale that a little bit different for the strength and power athlete, but you would still err on the side of homo sapiens, still err on the side of making a finely tuned aerobic engine. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's another error is just from, from the coaching standpoint, not knowing what they're actually accomplishing from a physiological demand. And, you know, we can, we can look at this in another way, and we've talked about this before as well, but from a, if you think about the body from an evolutionary biological standpoint, you come to those conclusions. But if you think of it from a physics perspective, you'll also come to the same conclusion. And, and what I mean by that is, if you look at living creatures the, from a universal standpoint, let's say I'm the universe, and I'm explaining to you what my purpose is. It seems everywhere you look that, that overwhelmingly the purpose of the universe is to dissipate heat energy into the environment, right? Like you think about any type of organization, organization of a tornado when there's too much energy in an area the, the, or, or, you know, the, 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 a tornado is, is made so that it can dissipate um, that energy. If sun is smashing into uh, an area of earth, one way to dissipate that energy is to make better energy dissipators so plants may grow so that they can absorb that heat because there's too much energy. The, this, the, the, the universe doesn't seem to like collections of energy. It seems to wherever there's a collection of energy, it dissipates that energy. And if you think about human training and human adaptation, whenever you're making a better heat producer, you can rest assured that you are going to benefit from becoming a better heat producer. Does that make sense? Right. The, ultimate, the ultimate goal or the ultimate fact of everything, especially living biological systems, is entropy. You are moving from an organized state initially to a less organized state until you die. And you are, you are feeling the effects of entropy no matter what species you are or what biological system you are. The only way to circumvent that one-way ticket to... to non-existence is to put energy into the system in such a way that it makes it better at dissipating heat and that's what that's what training is when you get stronger you build more muscles you build better heart tissue 
you build further endurance. What you're doing is you're becoming a better heat dissipator. And the reward from the universe is human health. And that's another way that you can think about this. So when you take an athlete, yeah, you want to make them into a better athlete. But when we say make them into a better human first, take that step back. We want, them, we want to make them a better heat dissipator. Um, and in terms of endurance training, if you say make a better heat dissipator, there is no better way than to increase what you're saying, this, this low level ability. Your aerobic capacity. Yeah, to battle entropy, make the universe happy. Make the, and again, people are going to say you can't battle entropy. And I'm not saying that you can. Entropy is a one-way ticket. But what we are saying is the universe produces pockets of organization with a sole purpose. And that is to slightly circumvent entropy even temporarily so you the, the earth the, the the universe seems to want to disorganize the only time you're allowed to circumvent back and organize is that if that in that organization process you're going to build a better heat dissipator right right just think of that before you train someone tomorrow at fucking good life fitness no don't I'm, yeah. you know what i'm saying but if, yeah. if if you would literally think about it that way I mean, I, w I wish it was true that we could get all of those benefits in 20 minutes. Um, that's a very convenient solution because then you, you spend less time having to be uncomfortable training. Mm -hmm. um, you spend less time having to convince a client to be compliant to the training. Uh, so this goes back to we have to educate people mm. because one of the things we get at FRC is like, well, how do you convince clients to do this boring work? It seems that the most boring work is the most important work, huh? When we're training ourselves. Uh, but how do you... Consciousness fucked everything up. Let's get back to that topic. Continue. Yeah. How do you, get, how do you convince them? How you convince them is you have to know why. So yeah. you have to educate yourself so that you can sell it. So if you don't really understand, say, this, the system of FRC, or if you don't understand aerobic training or whatever the topic is, then how would you be able to deliver that to someone make them understand and make them compliant. So step one is you have to understand what you're actually trying to accomplish, what you're doing. And then you have to educate the person so that they know what they're trying to do. You then feed their goal back to them. Whatever the goal is, I came in to lose body fat, or I came in to make this hip work better, or I came in to develop bigger pecs. Well, you can relate that all to those two things, having better joints, having better aerobic system. It just related to that, and it's easier to make the client bite and become compliant. But you got to understand what you're actually accomplishing. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it is it does come down down, down to time, um, as you say. And for most people listening, that that often ends up being the problem. I happen to think that your training day is 24 hours, and that the more you can spread the training day over those 24 hours, the safer and better result you will get. And, and once again, and, that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. We moved all day for sure. For sure. No hunter gatherer woke up and did fucking three sets of 10 squats with their feet in a very specific position. That's not yeah. a normal thing. Got in some compression boots and, and ate some protein. Yeah, for sure. They didn't say, you know what, instead of moving all day, I, I'm just going to sit here for 23 fucking hours and stare at the fire. And then I'm going to, you know, pack all of my movement into a one hour you know, right class like that, that didn't happen because, it, and it gets back to force management, which 
which is another reason why I say when you, if you're packing all of this stuff into a 45 minute espresso class and your tissue explodes, it's kind of understandable. Like you're, 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 you're managing forces and you're not managing forces just on the level of what exercise do I do? You're managing forces on the entire day. Where can I sprinkle these forces out most effectively? Right. So trainers should look at their one hour training sessions that they're doing with clients as not just a training session, but an educational session also. So this client knows other things I should be doing throughout the day when I'm not with you. Yeah. Uh, again, be an educator. And that might go back to the reason why people have a hard time understanding, you know, create hip space when you need a hip. I don't have time for that. I got a deadlift. Do you use your hip when you deadlift? Yes. What the fuck are we talking about? Like, what are we saying here? Right. right. We'll have some of the pro sports teams. That's one of the first things they ask, right? Is like, oh, this, the, the, the seminar was great. I, I loved all of this. But how do I fit in making it like doing my FRC work? I have to squat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The squat is not a hip exercise. The squat is an exercise that requires a hip. So if you have an athlete with no hip, as you've said, well, now where do I fit in my squatting? Because I have to make a hip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of crazy. It's a lot crazy. It's not consciousness, crazy. man. There's too many fucking decisions. That's our yeah. world. You know what I mean? Yeah. But- you know, you go to the you go to the store and there's like 17 different fucking candy bars, and then you get to choose which one you get to eat, and you don't got to ex- output any energy at all to get them. Once again, I think the the universe probably hates our fucking guts, and I think it's because consciousness. I said something about consciousness the other day being possibly negative, and someone on YouTube almost lost their shit because they, they, they're like, I can't believe someone that I listened to would say that our most valuable tool is negative. Like, whoa, I enjoy consciousness just like the next guy enjoys consciousness. But if we think about this from a higher level, if you, if you think about the universe, consciousness really makes you garner benefits that you otherwise could not garner if you didn't put in the work. Right. So we were talking about this idea about energy dissipation. And if you look at it from the the universe's perspective dissipate heat yeah you train you'll get stronger right you'll dissipate more energy that used to be the driving force of natural selection you know the fitter the the more you survive the fact that we can circumvent that and unfit people can think their way into riches and and success in my opinion, don't get my, means that we have circumvented the desires of the universe. I agree. And it just so happens that usually in so doing, you become a shittier heat dissipator, um, which means that you will tend to die off quicker if you look at the global you know, population. Does this make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I don't know what, I don't want to, I, I love, con- I'm just saying that it seems to me that as soon as we could, you know, use our elaborate, you know, thinking mechanism to coerce with other people's thinking mechanisms and bypass the need for physical well-being, um, that we kind of cheated the universe out of something. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this all came from aerobic training, huh? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely, this came from aerobic training. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, people, people don't understand what they're accomplishing in that type of training. And then they, 
with that lack of knowledge, they don't know how to train it either. Uh, I think okay, so let's go back to that. So with regards to time, somebody might be listening to this saying that I don't have, we get this when we work with our pro teams, right? They'll, 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 you know, we'll, we'll give them what we want done or what, and they'll come back and, you know, there's, it's always a time management problem, right? Sure. Uh, of course it's a time management problem. You're playing a make-believe game that human consciousness is made up and there's made up rules and made up training schedules and made up time. So you're not liter- you're not allowed to kind of, train them as they should be trained ultimately but you have to massage their training right so when they say i don't have enough time for level two work what do we do yeah i mean sometimes you can't have the perfect answer because part of that consciousness we invented sports and now sports are not a normal thing of the evolutionary process so we're now already doing something that's that's getting in the way of things that we probably really should be doing it's make-believe absolutely when you're when when i'm dealing with an athlete i am 100 percent convinced that i am not when i'm improving their their output of of athleticism in the way that they play their sport i am in no way um um confused into thinking i'm making them a better human right right um you know, the, the, the cost of that high output, the cost of their high performance ultimately is their physical health in, in yeah. one way or another. Um, so, yeah, it's a matter of balancing. Um, but it's I, not I, easy. You know? Yeah. But the the not- idea, what's happening now is where people are 100% focused on creating an athlete. That can't be the right answer. Right. So when I tell the, you know, these organizations, however you're managing your time, you you're spending way too much of it doing things that are ultimately not going to benefit you. Right. So it's in my, in my opinion, it's a matter of demonstrating to them where they're wasting time so that I can steal more time to do things like level two training. Yeah. Part of this process comes from like, you need to do a good assessment with people so that you know where you need to spend more of your time. Um, so from a, a joint training standpoint, we have FRA. So we have a functional range assessment and that literally tells you, I mean, you don't even have to think when you do an FRA on someone, you don't even have to think about how you're going to program. The FRA tells you how you should program. So now you at least have some options of priority. Uh, similarly with conditioning, you should do some conditioning tests to see the status of where someone is at. And then you know where you need to spend more time. I think one of the best things from a conditioning standpoint, everyone should be training with a heart rate monitor. It's the cheap, it's such a cheap training partner and it gives you so much feedback as to what's happening internally because a heart rate monitor is a internal measurement. It's how your biology is reacting to the stress that's coming into your body as opposed to something like a power meter. A power meter is on, Uh, Many cyclists use that. They have them on their bikes. Uh, If anyone uses those Concept 2 machines, the Ski Erg, Row Machine, Mm -hmm. the Bike Erg, uh, those also have power meters inside there where you can see the watts of work that someone's doing. That measure, that's an external measurement of of the force that you're putting out. Uh, Both of those tools are very great. If I had to choose just one, I would choose the cheap heart rate monitor over everything because it shows how is my biology responding to the load that I'm, I'm putting on my body? It's like an FRA for your heart. It's an FRA for your heart. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, we use, uh, or I use a five zone, just the classic five zone heart rate training model. Uh, there's other models, you'll see things with six, seven, and eight different zones. Uh, all of them have their benefits, all of them have their non-benefits. Uh, so in my opinion, you just need to choose one and it's just a tool that you can use. I choose to use the five zone. It's very simple for people. I think when you start making more heart rate zones, uh, that might be fine for more elite endurance athletes. But for the rest of the world, I think a five zone model is quite nice. Now using that, if you were using a five zone model, two important metabolic markers that you want to identify so that you can sort of structure someone's zones. The easiest way to make your zones is buy a high-end sport watch. So get a nice uh, high-end Garmin sport watch. And that thing starts to learn your body and it starts to actually make your zones for you. Um, that's the easiest way to do it. But the two metabolic markers that I want to find in someone is their lactate threshold and their aerobic threshold. Uh, and then we can move on from there. You know, to for people who are not lactate threshold, aerobic threshold, define them. So the lactate threshold would be, um, listen, there's a lot of different names and there's arguments. This used to be anaerobic threshold. We've known that that is not a good name for that. So when we say lactate threshold uh, in a lab, that would be somewhere around four millimole of lactate building up in the, uh, blood. So the lactate's accumulating in the blood at about four millimole. That's where they would, they would identify lactate threshold. So it, it's a exertion of which your max that you could put out for maybe about 30 ish minutes. So you're going pretty damn hard for 30 minutes and you can't go any faster. That's where lactate threshold lives. Uh, aerobic threshold is I think in a lab that's somewhere around two millimole of blood lactate. Um, in the real world, from an exertion standpoint, it's something you could probably do very comfortable for at least an hour. Uh, higher end endurance athletes, they can produce uh, work outputs at aerobic threshold for hours. So they can just go forever there. Now that lactate threshold in a five zone model would be somewhere around zone four. Your aerobic threshold somewhere, in, and when, you're, when I'm speaking on aerobic threshold, this is when your body is still able to predominantly use body fat as a fuel source. So you're moving at a low enough intensity that it offers that chemical process where we can turn fat into ATP. Uh, when you do lactate threshold, you're going right into a uh, glycolytic process. So you're starting to use sugars predominantly as your fuel source because that's a quicker chemical process. Your body can convert sugar into ATP much quicker than it can convert fat into ATP. And then the last one where you're redlining would be using creatine. You can pretty much turn that into ATP right away. But you have very minimal stores of that creatine and you have fairly minimal stores of glycogen, but you have infinite fat that you can pull from. Mm -hmm. So we wanna identify lactate threshold. We wanna identify aerobic threshold. So aerobic threshold is going to be the top end of zone two in a five zone model. Lactate threshold will be somewhere within this zone four. Um, zones, by the way, is actually a bad way to call it. That's actually what it was never supposed to be called. It's, it was actually supposed to be called levels. 
Um, so there's a, a physiologist, Andy, uh, Dr. Andy Coggins. Um, he made the software for something called Training Peak. So if any of you guys are endurance athletes listening to this um, and you like to nerd out on data, Training Peaks is a really, really cool tool. Um, but Coggins originally called them uh, levels, not zones, because there's no definitive real number. Like if my lactate threshold, if my watch calls lactate threshold 170, 170 beats per minute, that's not what it is tomorrow. That's not what it is yesterday. And it's different today. So it's somewhere it bioflows. So these zones bioflow into themselves. So it's just sort of an arena or an area, but it lets you know what you're training and what adaptations are taking place. So if I tell an athlete, I want you to do this in zone four, well, we know they're at least around there. So they're getting those adaptations. Now, how do you find those? How do you identify those metabolic markers? The best way, of course, is to go into a lab. That is not convenient. I don't even go into a lab and do it. Um, but that's the best way to do it. Something you can do to really get close to it is, again, have a good sport watch. If you had a Garmin sport watch, they do self-guided uh, lactate threshold tests. And they'll be pretty damn spot on. Or you can go do something like a Cooper's test. If you don't know what that is, you guys can Google a Cooper's test. Just go do a Cooper's test. Uh, or simply warm up for 15 minutes, slowly rising your heart rate up, uh, growing that intensity, and then go pretty damn hard. Try to sustain a pace. Let's say if it was running after that 15 minute warm up, try to run as at the fastest pace you can maintain for 30 ish minutes. And your average heart rate during that 30 minutes is going to be somewhere around your lactate threshold. So a pretty simple way to identify that metabolic marker. For your aerobic threshold, that's a little bit trickier. Uh, what we do is a very low-tech way at the gym. We use the Maffetone method. Uh, a guy named Phil Maffetone, he has this method called the 180 formula. Um, so you take your age, and, um, or you take 180 you minus your age. Somewhere around there will be uh, your, aerob your estimated uh, aerobic threshold. Uh, he has little things there. If, if you've been very deconditioned or you've had any things like heart disease or just not trained in a long time, you minus somewhere around five to 10 more beats. Um, if you've been training for a while, you just keep it at that number. If you've been training a long time, maybe add five to it. But what it does is at least gets you a place to start. And then what we'll do is, is do a little aerobic threshold test. Again, a very low tech, easy one. Many tests you can do, there's a drift test that takes a little bit more time, uh, but we might just use that Maffetone method, 180 minus the age, and then we will put them on a bike, treadmill, rower, whatever they can, actually whatever they have the prerequisites to do or if they can run, and we'll warm up for 15 minutes again because it takes about that time for that aerobic system to come on and stabilize, so you don't want too much drifting in the heart rate, so you bring it up, and now at that number that we've guesstimated on, can you nasal breathe through that? Because nasal, once you start mouth breathing, that's somewhere around, it's correlated to where you start going more glycolytic. So it's somewhere around there. Um, it's again, not a perfect way, but it's a good way to start. And now we just start training and we, and we can start to identify those zones and hone them in a little bit more. But find that aerobic threshold, that's now gonna be the top end of your zone two. Find that lactate threshold, 
make that somewhere in the middle of your zone four. Now what you can do is you can start to make your zone one, two, three, four, five. So if we know, know where zone two is, what you can do is you can take 10% below the top end of that zone two, 10% below that will now be your whole zone two. Now the, the very bottom of that zone two is now the top of your zone one. So everything below that is zone one, very simple. Now above that zone two, how you've identified your top end, if you use that 180 method, now that all the way to lactate threshold is somewhere where zone three is gonna live. So now you know where zone two is, you know where zone three is. Now lactate threshold is gonna be, let's say if mine was 170, I'm gonna go 170 to my, in and around my max heart rate. That's gonna be my zone four. Now anything above that is redlining, that's zone five. That's where we're gonna do very short, maybe 10 second sprints. That's where that work lives. And we're doing our lactate threshold. That might be where most of our intervals live is that effort level. And then if we're doing our longer endurance duration work, for most people, I try to get them to spend as much time in and around that top end of zone two. If we start getting higher end elite endurance athletes, they can put out so much force and work in that zone two that we actually have to start getting them to do more zone one work because they can actually haul ass in zone one. So you got to know who you're working with, but those are ways that you can start to identify those metabolic markers. And if you identify the metabolic markers, you can then figure out your zones. If you don't want to go through all that work, just buy a nice sport watch and it can start to figure it out for you. It starts mm -hmm. to learn you. Mm. I hope that helps people. Yeah, if they can pause and rewind, I'm sure that, that, that helps people. <laughs> pause and rewind it. What kind of coffee uh, are you drinking? Dewey's also a coffee connoisseur. <laughs> funny enough, there is no coffee in that mug. Um, oh, really? No. Is it one of those fake mugs? Like on CNN, shit. Uh, one of my um, old Brazilian jiu-jitsu athletes, he made, he, he's an artist also, that is Oregon. And he's got like all of these like cool little artwork that identify Oregon. So he did a bunch of different uh, states with that. So yes, I am a coffee connoisseur. Um, I'm a very big coffee connoisseur. I like yeah. that. I think if, if this career ever goes south, no shit, I will open a coffee shop. That's what I'll do. In Oregon? Yeah. That'd be nice. That would be nice. Yes. All right, my brother. We have covered uh, many a topic. Is there anything else that we should talk about now until next or, or, or leave that for another day? Yeah, we can leave it for another day. Um, yeah, I can't believe we didn't talk about bicycles, but that would probably bore everybody to death. Uh, oh, God. No. Find, find me mostly these days uh, on a bicycle rambling yeah. up and getting lost through the Oregon coastal mountains with no cell service. And we talked about this uh, yesterday. You were talking about gravel bikes and we were, I was learning about, uh, about bikes and I guess I'm buying a gravel bike, you said? You're going to buy a gravel bike, yeah. Yeah, so gra gravel is like the new frontier in cycling. Uh, in my opinion, gravel bikes are making uh, cycling great again. So we Go are ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, so it's... Uh, it's a nice way to, so a gravel bike is essentially, if, if someone doesn't know what that is, you, it looks like a road bike, but it offers the ability to put more plush fat tires on it, which gets you to be able to ride a lot more roads that you could 
otherwise not ride because you would pop your tires. They're more comfortable to ride, opens up more options for riding, it becomes more adventurous. Uh, probably the best thing in my opinion is now you leave cars. So you don't have those four wheeled missiles launching at you, possibly yeah. killing you on a bicycle. So you can get off the beaten path and where I live, I live right at the foothills. Like the little town I live in is the gateway to the Oregon coastal mountains. So I leave right from my front door and the Oregon coastal mountains, they have uh, over a thousand miles of logging roads, uh, which are gated. So you just hop the gates, which is legal. You can hop the gates and you can just go ride these logging roads with zero cars, zero people. You just see wildlife. Uh, so if anyone's thinking about getting in cycling, I recommend getting a gravel bike because they're really almost just as fast as a road bike. And it just gives you more options. I call them the Swiss army knife bike because you can ride mountain bike trails. You can get on a single track trail. You can ride gravel roads, you can ride paved roads, you can kind of do it all. It doesn't do any of them the best, it just does all of them the best together. So get a gravel bike, folks. Make your life better. On your way to your Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu lesson that you should take if you haven't done it, I want you to pick up a guitar, start learning that, and, yeah. and to get to there, you can use your newly purchased gravel bike which is in turn going to make yourself an aerobic system and you don't even have to think about it. You can just go have fun and you don't have to report back to me on the internet and say that you were training in zone two. <laughs> it's, it's fine folks. You don't have to announce it. You can just be in your own mind for, for a you second. Go enjoy yourself. Don't always make uh, your training just be training. I think that's a big secret to being uh, fit for your whole life. Find some activity that you actually authentically enjoy. If you have to announce that that activity is training your zone two every day, I really believe that you don't enjoy it as much as you could enjoy it. Yeah, Maybe you put yeah. the heart rate monitor off today and find something that ride. find something that makes you want to throw your fucking cell phone into a brick wall. Yeah, whatever, whatever, whenever you get that feeling, stick with that. Stick with that, and and that's the secret to fitness. Brilliant. All right, so uh, thank you to our sponsors again westside-barbell.com uh, as well as functionalanatomyseminars.com. Um, what do we have upcoming, Dewey? We have, uh, you just we have a seminar this weekend. I have no idea where or what it is. I know that I'll just be in the gym in front of a computer screen during a global pandemic. So it is what it is. We'll be All right, brother. All right, man. Love you, man. We'll talk to you soon. Love you.